Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for our fellow saloners who have been keeping up with the status of our fun drive that uh, took place during the month of March, I'm pleased to let you know that, uh, well, we've got another full year of podcasting coming your way. Collectively, uh, 209 fellow saloners have donated enough to keep us going. Now, if you've been watching the little fun drive thermometer on our program notes blog, you've noticed that we didn't quite make it all the way through next March, but we are safely paid up through the end of January, and, well, I have a plan to make up the difference. (laughs) Actually, the uh, little shortfall is probably a blessing in disguise, because, well, it's caused me to quit procrastinating and begin work on restructuring the back end of our delivery system. You see, when I began these podcasts 10 years ago, I had no idea that they'd still be going today. And as a result, the uh, code that supports the salon, well, it's a huge kludge, (laughs) spaghetti code. And us geeks know that eventually that can become a problem. Now, the main thing that's changed over these 10 years is that 8 years ago, the iPhone was introduced. And that eventually resulted in the situation we have today, where more people stream these podcasts than download them. At first, I didn't pay any attention to this phenomena because, well, my service provider gives me unlimited bandwidth, as do almost all of them these days. But what's in the fine print of these contracts is CPU time, and that's directly affected by the number of concurrent connections to the server. Eventually, our number of simultaneous connections grew so large that we were forced into shifting to a dedicated server to handle the load. And as some of our fellow saloners know, our server still crashes a couple of times a month when the load peaks above what it can handle. And by the time I notice this and reboot the server, well, I suppose a lot of people have been inconvenienced. Well, it's time to fix that, and so I'm now exploring cloud services, which, uh, well, they seem to be a good solution for the ebb and flow of our traffic. So by this time next year, I hope to not only have a more efficient delivery system for you, At the same time, our expenses should come down to uh, where we don't need to raise so much money each year. Hopefully you won't notice a change and everything will continue on for you as it has been for these past 10 years. And if you have some personal experience with cloud providers, I'd love to hear from you, as uh, I'm more or less teaching myself about cloud tech as I go along. Fortunately, we've got a lot of time to work things out. And uh, if you have some information about clouds you want to pass to me, you can reach me via Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. Or, better yet, to avoid all the spam filters, just uh, add a comment to the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to via PsychedelicSalon.us. And to all of our donors, I want to give you a great big thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks to each and every one of you, the Psychedelic Salon will live for yet another year. And, by the way, I've only heard from two of our Bitcoin donors via email. So if you are one of the nine Bitcoin donors that I haven't heard from yet, well, if you send me your address, I'll send you a personal thank you. Now, let's get back to the June 1994 Terrence McKenna workshop that we've been listening to these past few weeks. If you think back to my previous podcast, you'll remember that both Kathleen Wart and myself commented about the somewhat high degree of risk associated with speaking about psychedelics in the uh, previous decades. And as you listen to Terrence McKenna with me right now, try to keep in mind the fact that this talk was given in June of 1994. 
And believe me, many of the people who were in attendance at this workshop were actually taking a risk in attending and having their names associated with that of McKenna. At the time, there couldn't have been more than five or six people in the world who were standing up in public and talking about what it's like to have a few tokes of NNDMT. And please note that Terrence here is speaking about NNDMT, not 5-MeO-DMT. There's a big difference, as you probably know already. But getting back to Terrence in the 1990s, believe me, I was searching for somebody like him uh, when I was living out there on the east coast of the United States. But while I know that there must have been others doing the same thing, Terrence was the only one whose name made it all the way to the swamps of Florida back then. And what prompted me to bring that to your attention was the comment that you'll hear again in about 30 minutes. I think I said this in reference to something else. I am self-initiated. I No lineage controls me. Nobody ever came knocking on my door and said, you know, you shouldn't talk about this stuff. It, it, nobody has ever done that to me. So I have the weird feeling, and I don't believe it, but I have the feeling that it's like I discovered it. Because nobody tells me, nobody comes over and says, hey, you're on our territory, or don't talk about that. Didn't you know that we Mandayans have been doing this for 10,000 years? So, and, and I've been talking about it for, since 82 in public, and it's still a secret. It's still a secret. It's the secret that can't be told. And with that, let's now rewind this talk back to the beginning and join Terrence and a few friends on a June day in 1994. And just for fun, try to recall what you were doing that month. Psilocin and DMT are not the same thing, and they don't actually degrade into the same thing. So they are sort of like parallel pathways uh, in, in the brain. Um, DMT is by far the most dramatic of all of these hallucinogens. And in some ways, if we only had DMT, we could do just fine, thank you. I mean, it's clumsy in some situations, but, but it definitely takes you from A to Z with all the stops in between. Uh, it's also interesting in that it is so, so how can I put it, uh, socially transportable in that it only lasts 10 minutes. Well, so our critics can surely invest 10 minutes. I mean, it's not addictive. So what argument can there be against it? If you're going to ha take up the cudgels of drug oppression and lead a lifelong crusade against the evils of hallucinogenesis, surely you will not sully yourself too dramatically if you just invest ten miserable minutes to try and understand the phenomenon from the inside. And of course, if we get that ten minutes, we have them. <laughs> because th this... I don't believe that this side of the yawning grave there is a more dramatic 
experience that you can go through. I mean, maybe surviving the crash of a 747 or something, but these are high-risk activities. Smoking DMT is not a high-risk activity. You could do the whole thing in 15 minutes, start to finish. And yet what happens is it is more dramatic than a flying saucer invasion. Uh, It uh, takes you into a direct three-dimensional confrontation with uh, an alien intelligence of some sort. And it raises questions about um, uh, the after-death state, whether or not consciousness can exist without a body, uh, the nature of the alien, the nature of our place in the cosmos, it's it's uh, very very dramatic, and I think it is. Uh, uh, you know, we said yesterday the inner eye opens on the landscape of time. Well, when the inner eye is illuminated by the light of DMT, then essentially what you get is a fast forward of the rest of of universal history squeezed down into about a minute and a half, because even though the DMT trip, you know, takes seven minutes and takes five minutes to get over, the really important part is in the, has a duration on the order of a hundred seconds or something, and the longest hundred seconds you will ever know, uh, because that's how you get people to do it how I was gotten to do it. I only asked one question when they brought me DMT. I said, how long does it last? And he said, three to five minutes. Bring it on, Sam. (laughs) (coughs) And, you know, never having recovered then from that decision. So you said they're both aliens? No, I don't know what they are. I mean... The thing that you see in DMT, I mean, I'm what I've called the self-transforming elf machines, right? Are uh, well, well, when you smoke DMT and you get a good hit, I mean, the leather-lunged hash aficionados among us really have a leg up in this department because they can simply take it and hold it because it is very harsh and peculiar and somewhat synthetic tasting. It's a little like smoking a mothball. (laughs) Sounds like fun, right? (laughs) But what happens to me is I am propelled through a series of of tunnels, fluxing tubes-like things that are very brightly colored, and there's a kind of a sense of tumbling that is an initial discontinuity once I get beyond this swirling mandalic form that seems very typical that people call the chrysanthemum. You sort of have to break through that. It's definitely a threshold drug. You have to get over a certain threshold. But if you do, hang on, Hannah. And it just it comes on in about 15 to 30 seconds. And you're propelled down this fluctuating colored tube. And, that, and your body feels 
strange, anesthetized, something. It's very hard to put your finger on it. And then I burst into a space where there is immediately a, a roar of welcome. And I'm in this domed, uh, indirectly lit, comfortable place with ceilings not much higher than this and the walls pushed a little bit further out. And somehow there's an intuition that is unmistakable that this is underground, that we're far underground. Why? I don't know, but you know that you're underground. And then the main thing that's happening, though, is the entities, these the, the elf machines, these jewel self-dribbling basketballs made out of light, these they look like foraminifera cast in opal or something that are completely moving and transforming. And they come right up to you, right up to you. And then they, they jump into your chest and jump out again. And they, there is this crazy emotion running around. It's like... I don't know, did you ever see the film Hell's a Poppin'? It was a 30s deal. Um, or the or Marx Brothers cartoon, uh, uh, Marx Brothers routine, or a Max Sennett comedy. It's sort of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon run backwards at high supersonic speed. There's all this jumping around and playing. They're playing. They're like kittens. Or, yes, sort of like kittens. And they're saying, we love you. We love you, buddy boy. And we're so glad to see you. And it's horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying because, you know, less than a minute before, you were with your scruffy friends in some room somewhere with the call due from your lawyer in 45 minutes and all this stuff. And then you did this drug. And and it came on so fast that it's not like doing a drug. It's more like, did the apartment house blow up? Has there been an earthquake? Are we dead? What has happened? And these things are saying, forget that. Don't worry. Number one message, don't worry. Number two message, somewhat surprising, do not give way to amazement. That's what they say. They say, do not abandon yourself to wonder. Just pay attention. Because I'm like this. <gasps> you know, and you breathe. And look around, and it doesn't go away. It's stable, you know. And you think, oh, God. You take your pulse, your pulse is all right, and, 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 and you're just like, Jesus criminy, I've done it this time. And meanwhile, these things are uh, doing what they do. And what they do is they make objects out of language. They possess a language that you can see. And they make things with it. They're singing, they're punning, 
they're punning is what they're doing. They're, they're able to make things which are both words and objects simultaneously. And they're producing these uh, unbelievable puns and they're showing them to you. And one of them will come scampering up, although they have no legs and they're not, you know, but scamper is the vibe. They come scampering up and they say, look at this. Look at this, and here's another one. No, no, me, me. They're elbowing each other out of the way. Look at this, look at this. And you, as you direct your attention into these things that they're offering you, you it, then you realize why they said, do not abandon yourself to wonder. Do not give way to astonishment. Because what they're showing you is impossible. It's impossible. And as you look, you say, matter can't do that. Light can't do that because these things are morphing, transforming. These cross between Fabergé eggs and Radiolaria and, and opalescent foraminifera and these complex mathematical geometric things saying, look at this, look at this. And then when they release these things, the things themselves are generating language, squealing and chirping and punning and humming and generating other objects. And this stuff is just accumulating. And they are very intent and they say, do what we are doing. Do what we are doing. Pay attention and do it. And at first, and by at first, I mean the first five years, of smoking DMT every once in a while because it's not something you do very often. I couldn't, it was all going so fast. I was just like in shock. I was in fact too amazed to participate. And then high dose mushroom trips and practicing the glossolalia and this and that, I got to the place where when I go in there and all this is happening, I feel in the bottom of my stomach, in the solar plexus, uh, like a, a lump or a light or a something, and it begins to move up. And when it reaches my mouth, my mouth just snaps open. And I can do what they want me to do. And I can then join in the play and can make these objects. This is the glossolalia part of it. Glossolalia is not what it appears to the observer. It's some kind of activity where you, you know, masturbate the visual cortex or something like that. And as long as you do it, and as long as the drug stays at high concentration in the synapse, uh, you're just ecstatic. And they're ecstatic. They're jumping up and down. Yes, yes, he's got it by gad. That's it. Pouring in all this encouragement and love and affection. And you now, you're now, you know, a minute, two and a half minutes deep into this thing. And at that point, it just sort of like a shudder goes through it. And it kind of pulls apart and falls down and moves back, and melts, and drifts away, and evaporates, and any number of other words used to describe dissipation. And then you open your eyes, and your friends are there, 
granted they appear to be beryllium mantises of some sort, but nevertheless easily recognized as friends and neighbors. And though you are more loaded at that moment than you have ever been in your life, you feel perfectly confident to proclaim, I'm down. (laughs) Because you are down. Because compared to where you were 20 seconds earlier, the fact that your friends look like polished mantids and all the rest of it is utterly mundane and trivial and gives you no problem at all. You, you just say, thank God I'm back in the real world. And then over the course of the next three minutes, it just goes away. Do your friends confer yeah. that, they, that they have the same experience? A lot of people have the experience. It is put through many filters, and people always ask this. And I think two things are critical here. Dose, and I'm a lifelong hash smoker, and I can take an enormous hit of hash and hold it. There isn't a cilia left in my entire uh, lung system. That's important. And then the other thing is, I think it's this veil thing. How much can you stand? Because people come back and they say things which are like along the spectrum to what I'm describing, but not quite there. Like people often say, there were elves, there were little people, not self-dribbling jeweled basketballs, but simply little people. I've even had people say they wore, they had leather jerkins and, and little turned up curls on their footwear and stuff like that. Um, other people say, it, it's to me, the archetype of DMT is the archetype of the circus. And when you take it, you'll know what I mean. Because the circus is a very complex emotional construct. A circus is a great place to take children. They love circuses because of the clowns and the animals and the colored costumes and the moving light. But the circus is many things. I mean, above all that, and in the center ring up near the top of the tent is the lady in the tiny spangled costume who is hanging by her teeth and working without nets. Death and eros. And I think, you know, it may reflect on my psychology, but I am positive that my first exposure to death and eros was such a woman because I can remember being so small that I I was wrapped up in something and handed from hand to hand. And yet when I saw the lady in the spangled costume risking her life, I simultaneously understood that she was risking her life and that she was some kind of great babe. And, you know, I was under three at the time. So, eros and death in the midst of hilarity and humor, which is a weird juxtaposition. And then the side, the sideshows, the boy in the bottle, the Siamese twins, the goat-headed lady, you know, the bearded woman, all of this weird, kinky, strange, deviant stuff is just off the main exhibit. And 
the circus, what the circus represents is rupture of plane. It represents the alien. A circus coming to a small Midwestern town is an alien invasion. Children are told they can't play out late at night. The carny people are in town. Farmers come from miles around. It's a celebration, but it also is a, an experience of a social edge. The carny people, they drink, they may swap wives, who knows? They're not like us over here at the Lutheran Church. And eventually, after a few days, they make their money, they spin their bottles, they play their game, and then they pack up and they leave. And every child worth his or her salt wants to run away with the circus. Of course, because the circus will take you to another world, a world completely different from the humdrum Kansas that you're living in somewhere. If any of you are film fans, uh, Federico Fellini had a wonderful affection for the circus and clearly saw it in this way. Not only the circus of Amarcord and... Uh, and, but the, the circus of Roma, Satyricon, Casanova, I mean, over and over again, Fellini, he was doing this. He was a, an impresario. He was a master of magic and effect. It's, uh, it's this idea that there's a world right next door, literally one toke away, that when you lift the veil, then the screaming elf hordes come bounding in. And when I did it, I was a, a, a fan of Sartre and Camus and Jean Genet and you know, situationalism, all this weird kind of European 20th century spun down, tired out stuff. I was, I was not a believer in elves, let me put it that way. And it just instantly settled a whole bunch of questions that I had been looking for answers for in the psychedelics. But in the other psychedelics, it was like always running through my fingers. You know, it is the imagination, it's mind, it's me, it's like dream. With DMT, the conviction is unescapable that, my God, this is real. It's more real than this world. This world is like a shimmering hallucination compared to the DMT world. And as to what it means, I'm not sure. I mean, I took pure DMT with me to the Amazon on one of the trips and got out with the Iowa Scarrows and turned a couple of these guys on to this. And they were, number one, appalled, and number two said... It's ancestors. It's ancestor spirits. I mean, didn't we tell you that we do it all with the ancestors? Well, that is, strangely enough, the conservative analysis. Because look at what you've got. You've got some kind of intelligent entity, not made of matter, made of light, able to communicate with English-speaking human beings, sort of, meaning with this visual language. Well, so it's either, if we put aside the figment of your imagination theory, which seems a little pallid at this point, then it's either an extraterrestrial, 
a true extraterrestrial. And that's possible. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you were an extraterrestrial of great sophistication and skill and technological power, and you wanted to contact and interact with human beings without alarming them or setting off a historical crisis on their planet, how would you do it? I think you would hide yourself inside an intoxication. Because as we know, if you meet somebody and they tell you they were drinking heavily last night and they saw pink elephants, only a mad person calls the zoo to find out if any elephants have escaped. That's ridiculous. No, we don't take seriously reports of pink elephants because they are associated with intoxication. Well, if you wanted to disguise and hide yourself in the detritus of this world in a place humans would never ever take you seriously, then just slip in between the pink elephant and the something else in an intoxication. So that's one possibility. True extraterrestrials with some kind of mentalist technology that where what we think of as a drug is for them a communications network of some sort. Or it could be a parallel continuum of some sort, uh, not exactly made of matter. But how weird that the way you get from this world to that world is by using a drug. But maybe that's not so weird. Maybe the idea that you would climb in an H.G. Wells-style machine and push a button is just absurdly 19th century and naive. Uh, but the more conservative position since we've never discovered extraterrestrials or dwellers in parallel continuums. And since these things, they are alien and yet not alien. They are alien and yet the alienness is pervaded with a real sense of familiarity. So I think that what they are is souls. And this is what the shamans in the Amazon said they were. They're souls. And that what we're seeing is an ecology of souls. And, you know, it took me the first 16 years of my life to fight my way free of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and I'm appalled that life's intellectual adventure has brought me back to the point where we have to talk about souls. <laughs> but, hey, once you've been there, once you've been swarmed by a mess of them, your view on this subject changes. And I think it's very interesting news. I don't know, well, hmm, it's like, it's like dying, sort of. And I, at one point, had an opportunity to turn on a Tibetan monk to these things, a Tibetan lama, not, not, a Budweiser Lama, not one of those people, a real Lama. And uh, he's since died. He was ancient then. In fact, I was afraid it might kill him, but he said it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, after it was all over, he said, those are the lesser lights. He said, you cannot go deeper into the bardo and return. 
he said, if you go deeper into the bardo than this, you will sever your connection to the body. And, and so, essentially what he was saying was it's a near-death experience. But it's a lot weirder than the near-death experiences being popularized on daytime TV and in the New Age press, which are all about welcoming relatives, holding out their arms and beckoning. This is not welcoming relatives we're talking about here. I think they are souls, but I don't think it's Aunt Minnie and Uncle Ned. I don't think it works quite like that. One of the very weird things about the DMT place that I go, and I've done it many, many times in order to build up an image of, of what it is, and the image that comes to me is that... Well, I've already mentioned this thing about how it always reveals itself through veils. It never shows you what the real action is. The vibe of this place that I go on DMT is, uh, it's a playpen, is what it is. And these self-transforming elf machines that we're going into such an ontological swivet about are nothing more than toys, is what they are. They are designed to amaze and amuse me someone with a very deep insight into human psychology created these things and they're nothing more than the equivalent of taking plastic shapes strung on a string and hanging them over a bassinet so that an infant can begin to bat at them and coordinate eye, hand, distance, this sort of thing. The feeling is not only of a playpen but of a maternity ward, that you're being born, and you're being born, and there's a lot of, you know, what ayahuascaros call little doctors, is what they call the things they see in ayahuasca. There are a lot of little doctors in this weird underground space, and they're waiting for you. And because you only stay two minutes, it doesn't get too out of hand because what can happen in two minutes? Not, you see, you look around, they show you some toys, they tell you you're a fine fellow, they tell you not to worry, and it's, the interview is over. But what if there was no going back? Well, then you're just there. You're a little swaddling, and you're there. And presumably beyond the confines of that room is a world as different from that room as this world is different from the general maternity ward at Kaiser Hospital. And then you, you, you go with them into that place. That's what it feels like. And um, I don't know what it means. What does it mean, Mr. Natural? I don't know what it means. It don't mean shit. That was Mr. Natural's answer to the question, you recall. Uh, it, it seems as though it should be a secret. And on, in a sense, it is a secret in that, you know, it isn't the world's largest religion, is not DMT smoking. Uh, I, I, I think I said this in reference to something else. I am self-initiated 
I, no lineage controls me. Nobody ever came knocking on my door and said, you know, you shouldn't talk about this stuff. It, it, nobody has ever done that to me. So I have the weird feeling, and I don't believe it, but I have the feeling that it's like I discovered it because nobody tells me, nobody comes over and says, hey, you're on our territory, or don't talk about that. Didn't you know that we Mandayans have been doing this for 10,000 years? So, and, and I've been talking about it for, since 82 in public, and it's still a secret. It's still a secret. It's the secret that can't be told. And I'm fascinated by you people because um, it is your fate, and I have no idea why, to come at least this far. I mean, maybe some of you have smoked DMT, but probably most of you haven't. So it's your fate to come this far uh, this morning to hear this. And you can forget it. You can disbelieve it. You can think that I am a screwball and de disempower it that way. But as far as I can tell, and I have searched the attic of Western and Eastern civilization, been to a lot of weird places, uh, as far as I can tell, this is it. This is the thing which we are raised to believe is impossible. They tell you there's no doorway out except the grave. And then they tell you it's no doorway out. But even if the grave is not a doorway out, even if the grave means dissolution into non-entity for all eternity, DMT is the way out. And it exists. It's common. It exists in many plants. If, as a society, we valued it, we could produce trainloads of the stuff. It's just a trivial, ordinary chemical of some sort. But what it does to the human mind is this civilization can't stand it. This civilization is based on a number of unquestioned premises which, in the light of DMT, are seen to be not only false, preposterous. And I don't know where we go from here. I don't know if societies can be built on DMT. Maybe only individual lives can be built on DMT. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a funny thing. Why isn't more of it made? There's a lot of LSD around. LSD is hard as hell to make. You have to be good. You have to be very good. DMT is a second-year organic chem, final exam kind of deal. It's at that level of difficulty. And yet, wherever it is, it's precious. It's never met with in large amounts. And um, it, it doesn't seem to behave like an ordinary substance. You would think something with this amount of hype behind it would make somebody rich. You know, somebody would say, well, by God, I'm going to make 500 kilos of that and spread it from Singapore to, you know, wherever and, uh, and make a killing. 
It's never like that. If you find somebody who has some, they have a tiny amount. And, uh, and I should make the final point, I suppose, this is not something completely alien. The chemical I'm now talking about, the experience is plenty alien. The chemical, the chemical occurs in your own body. It occurs in the human body, in the human brain. No one knows what it's doing there. But I think that uh, dream, the, uh, because the, the DMT actually not only occurs in the human brain, but it occurs in higher and higher concentrations as you ascend the, phylate, uh, the primate phylogeny, the phylate primogeny. Uh, <clears throat> and I think dreaming that the chemistry of dreaming must be run on DMT, and for several reasons. The first one is, there is only one thing on Earth that ends like a DMT trip, and that's an interrupted dream. You know how you can be dreaming, and you're in Paris, and you've finally gotten the car, and you've met the friend, and now you're headed for the... And it's this kind of crazy stuff. And then the alarm clock rings, and literally, before your feet hit the floor, you, it's gone. You, know, the whole, you can almost feel it, it melts. It melts. Dreams melt in the same way that DMT melts away. And, very suggestive, the physiological concomitant to dreaming is what's called rapid eye movement. This has been known since the 50s. Well, uh, the uh, highest concentration of DMT in human cerebrospinal fluid occurs between 3 and 4.30 a.m. This is when the deep dreaming is going on as correlated to REM, to, to REM movement of the eyes. Well, uh, when you dose somebody on DMT, and it's smoked, I guess I said that, when you dose somebody on DMT, they flop down and lie still if they're a good subject. Otherwise, they twitch and scream and try to run around, but you don't put up with that. You just sit on them. But a good, a good somebody who knows how to take their medicine will just shut up and lie down. Well, then you look very carefully at them. Their eyes are closed, and you can see about 30 seconds into the experience their eyes begin to dart wildly under their closed eyelids. They are in REM sleep. And I'm sure that if you could put electrodes on people, you would see that the DMT triggers a plunge into REM. And that's where the, the, this takes place. Second piece of data which relates to this and is very, very interesting to me. And I wish I had more resources, more money, more... Uh, connections, believe it or not, uh, is this, that once you have smoked DMT and had the experience that I'm talking about, later, years later, you can have a dream where you're with people somewhere and something's going on and then, and then lo and behold, somebody produces a small glass pipe in this dream. 
hands it to you, flashes a butane lighter, and it happens. It happens in the dream. And not a memory of it, not a pale reflection, but a 100% full-on 70 milligram DMT trip in the dream. That means to me that we have the capacity for this all the time. And remember, this is the most powerful hallucinogen on this planet. And yet, apparently, our body chemistry is delicately enough balanced that this is not that far out of reach. And yet, people never have DMT trips when awake. If it happened to one person in 50,000, it would be a phenomenon known to us since the birth of Greek medicine. But people don't ever have that happen to them. Uh, so I think, I talked to Rupert about this. His idea, which is possible, certainly, he calls it a, uh, he calls it a um, necrotogen. Yes, necrotogen. Meaning that, it, that it's something which is released in the brain at death and never before under ordinary circumstances. And that for some reason, this is the chemical which lets you die. And it is true that at a certain point, the organism, as I understand it, sort of releases. It gives up. And then death proceeds very quickly from that point. So perhaps this is what it is. But what is it for? That's the question. I mean, why can't we just die like dogs? Nobody wants to die. Why should there be this salutary release? You know, you know there is orgasm, or at least ejaculation, in some forms of death. That seems to imply that the body is in life in a state of tension and holding, and when, when death is really very close, if not inevitable, then the body un goes through some kind of series of changes and perhaps one of them is the release of DMT. I, I don't say this proves an after-death world because I know what proof means. And, you know, dying says nothing about death and tripping says nothing about death or it can only give an indication. But it it has caused me to think very, very seriously about shamanism, about their insistence that they work through ancestor magic, and about the question of death, just what is biology trying to do, and what is the nature of our form? You know, metabolism, we come into being with a morphogenetic program, and by eating, first our mother's milk and then pablum and then the stuff of the world, we stabilize the form. The, fle <clears throat> the flesh is replaced every few months or years, but the form stays. Over a long period of time, the, the form sort of withers and hunches and wrinkles, but it's recognizable. Seventy years after birth, a person is still recognizably the little girl or boy that they were at five years old in most cases. So then at death, the form fails and metabolism fails 
and you no longer are maintained far from equilibrium in what's called the living state. Instead, you know, everything stops and the body becomes an object like a piece of furniture. It can be stacked like cordwood or dealt with in whatever way anybody wants to. Uh, But perhaps nature does not create this form in vain. And perhaps in the world of higher dimensions and possibilities, this thing is preserved. It is certainly a persistent intuition of many religions that what life is about is creating um, something called a a, a vehicle, an after-death vehicle, a body of light, a diamond body, something which endures and that at death is released into some kind of super space where it has an entirely other kind of existence about which we can know and say nothing. Uh, When you look at our past, it seems to support this idea to some degree in that we all are here and yet we we came out of the bodies of women and in a very mysterious process. I mean, it always seemed to me, people always said, you know, what sex is about is the union of, of egg and sperm and that's where people came from. Well, at age eight, I was not satisfied with that. I mean, they always wanted to talk about sex, but what I wanted to know was, but where do people really come from. I understand about how we get them downloaded into meat, but where are they? You know, where are they? I mean, where was I a thousand years ago? Where was I a million years ago? And say, well, you didn't exist. Well, then you came into existence 50% over here in your father's sperm and 50% over here in your mother's egg. Well, then did I exist? You know, my mother had the egg which became me from the time she was born. And uh, if my my father was younger than my mother, so half of me apparently existed before the other half existed. Say, hmm, this sounds like messed up thinking of some sort. Isn't it rather that uh, a pattern is making a series of transits from one dimension to another? And you know, dying is not like birth in the sense that in the womb you're alone. Uh, here we, we have our wonderful planet full of interesting people and we die away from our group. Uh, when you start down the birth canal, it's not because you're lonely, because the concept lonely could hardly arise in the womb, I think, because there is no other except the other of the complete surround, which you may or may not image as human. You may think of it as the world, not my, you know, an extension of myself. So, uh, because I'm not the smartest person in the world, for sure, but I'm also not the stupidest person in the world. And I've been more or less around the block, the major religions, the major schools of transformation, 
the major themes and variations on sexuality. I'm, I'm like a normal person. And I tell you, from where I'm standing, it looks to me like the biggest news there is. I do not understand why there aren't four-inch headlines. You know, scientists announced discovery of hyperspace, nearby inhabited dimension confirmed by laboratories in England and Russia, or some crap like that. You know, but it it never happens. It seems to belong. It's not part of our official culture. It's not recognized. It's not sanctioned. It's not allowed. And, you know, I have a, somehow found a unique kind of niche, but most people who talk like this don't get a chance to make a living. They're put in back wards and heavily sedated and kept from contact with the rest of people because it, it's madness. But it's not dysfunction. It doesn't... I know how to hold my fork, make a phone call, pay my bills. What kind of madness is it? It's just a minority opinion. It's not madness. But it's a minority opinion because it's a minority experience, for crying out loud. I mean, if most, if everybody lived in Hawaii and you were an Arctic explorer and you insisted that part of the planet was covered with ice five miles thick and the sun stayed up 24 hours a day, they would just put you away. turns out it's the fact of the matter. So this is a polar region of human experience that very few people have mapped or been to, and yet we don't have a full picture. I mean, I would like to know, what would Jean-Paul Sartre have said? What would Nietzsche have said? What would Wittgenstein have made of this? I mean, all these people based their lives and their professions on the datum of experience. Well, by God, here's a datum of experience. Put this in your pipe and smoke it, and we'll talk datum of experience. Yeah. I was wondering, um, through the history of your taking DMT, do you sense a progression as, as like a state as you're maturing, so you go further and further with each experience? And how often can you take it? How often can you take it? You can take it um, every 24 hours. People, people have an interesting relationship to it. Uh, a lot of, like when you give it to someone who's never had it, they've usually been furiously hyped, so they're quaking in their boots. And if you can get over all that and actually get them to do a huge amount, often they come down literally begging for more. And I tend to resist giving them more because I've noticed that there seems to be a slight reflex, a, a slight tolerance. The second, the second flash, if you go into it immediately, is not as strong as the first. But that person who came out of it clawing and begging for it, 24 hours later, if you offer it to them, they may hesitate. They may even take a pass. Because, as I've always said, it's the implications of it. And you don't get the implications together in the first five minutes. You say, you know, my God, what was that? Well, and then you sit down under a tree somewhere by yourself and try to answer the question, what was that? And it makes your hair stand on end. You know, was I dead? Was I 
in the presence of extraterrestrial minds? Did that really go on? Was it really real? And so there's a kind of a, a reluctance to do it. It's like jumping off a cliff into cold water. You really have to screw your courage to the sticking point. And I don't know why that is, because every time I do it, I'm absolutely delighted. And I have immense resistance to it. And every time I do it, it's just like, yes, I remember. And they scream in greeting. I mean, they just turn out by the dozens. Say, here he is, tremendous. You send so many. You come so rarely. Well, let's get on with the show. <laughs> and then, you know, the Fabergé eggs, the dance, the whole thing. Um, it's uh, it's boundary dissolving is what it is, and we have a real aversion to that. When the boundary that's dissolved is serious, we have a real aversion to it. And the other thing about DMT that's fascinating that I should have mentioned, I suppose, is that we associate these drug experiences with slight alterations of our judgment. You know, when you drink liquor, you become socially capable of taking risks that you wouldn't ordinarily take. I'm speaking of guys now. Uh, in other words, the, the liquor slightly changes your judgment about what is proper and what you can get away with and so forth and so on. The strange thing about DMT is it doesn't affect your mind does not affect your mind. So you come into that place neither happier nor sadder than where you left. You are not stimulated. You are not depressed. You are not anything different. You are exactly the same person that you were. And yet the world has disappeared. It's been completely replaced 100% swap out and here you are in this elf nest and if you were on ketamine and you were to wander into this elf nest it would just be fine because everything is fine on ketamine the first thing you notice when you do ketamine is that you've stopped worrying about the fact that you just did ketamine that you know it, it impairs your judgment in other words or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's appropriate to not worry on ketamine. But I like to keep my wits about me. And on DMT, you keep all your wits about you. It, it isn't about you. People say, well, I'm depressed. Should I do it? Or I just had a big fight with my girlfriend. Should I do it? <laughs> what difference does it make? Who cares about you and your problems? And <laughs> where you, it's not like that. You know, it's what it is, and you can have it or not have it or whatever. It's very, very convincingly another place, and and that's uh, that's startling. I always close my eyes because it's I want to see inside. If you keep your eyes open, it's plenty peculiar. I mean, every, it's, everything changes. And, and if you take a big enough hit, you can't tell whether your eyes are open or closed. 
that distinction seems trivial. You're just there, eyes open or eyes closed. But I like to do it on a sunny hillside, outside. It's the only one of these things that I like to do in light. It'll work in darkness, but light is spectacular. You know, Just lie down on a sunny hillside, calm down, breathe deeply. If you've had to climb to get to where you are, breathe that all away. You want to be absolutely calm and still. And I do it alone uh, because I, I make strange noises and stuff and I don't want to be interrupted, critiqued, helped or any of that malarkey. Um, and then I just do it. And um, there's nothing like it on this planet. And the puzzle of it is there's nothing like it in human history. No secret society, no Gnostic cabal, no group of Talmudists or Tantrics, uh, I think, ever came near this. Uh, There may be other mysteries in this world that I know nothing of that are, in fact, the private and closely guarded property of these lineages and all that. Who knows? But this... This was the Hope Diamond lying around unclaimed, uh, just sitting on the surface. Um, you said that there was rapid eye movement, um, mm-hmm. which sounded like like it was almost like a, a level of sleep, but it sounds like you, you're describing what would be more lucid dreaming. Like lucid dreaming, sleep. yes. So you did come away um, conscious of what the experience was. Well, you do, sort of, but like dreams... It's very hard to hang on to. You have to do DMT a fair number of times to build up any notion of it. It's very interesting. At at minute, I mean, somebody smokes it, right? At minute three, they can't speak. At minute seven, they can't stop speaking about how absolutely amazed, appalled, and exalted they are. And at minute twelve, they can't remember what they were talking about. At minute seven. All the, and you finally, a half an hour after doing it, really the only impression most people have after the first time is they say, it was the weirdest thing which ever happened to me and I cannot remember anything about it. It's like there's a, I think, you know, physiologically speaking, there's no transcription of short-term RNA into memory. It, it, it's memory can't hold it. And I think that's because memory works through associative triangulation. You know, this car looks like that car, this city, Lisbon reminds me of San Francisco or Rio. But if you have an experience that's utterly outside category, you have no triangulation of it. There's, you, you can't say And I am very aware, you know, when I tell the story of the self-transforming elf machines and the glossolalia and all that, that it's a kind of a lie. It's the only... It's it's, it's not true, but it points toward a truth that can't be told. Uh, 70 milligrams, and then what happens is you have to take several hits 
Well, it depends on your sensitivity. This is another thing that needs to be studied by science. Some people seem practically on the brink of it. I mean, in other words, you put 70 milligrams in the pipe, you tell them that it's probably going to take three enormous tokes. Well, they get halfway through one shallow toke, fall down, speak in tongues, twitch, moan, flail. It seems inappropriate to suggest that they do three more toes. <laughs> so, you know, and, 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 but for me, well, I, I can do it on one toke if it's a real, tremendous, enormous hash toke. What I usually do is I take one small toke and it kind of anesthetizes my throat. And then on the second one, you go for broke. But it does require a certain amount of courage because when you take the first toke, you immediately feel it. You don't feel the trip, but you feel that something astonishing is happening inside your body. It's a, co- a weird kind of... It's as though all the air has been pumped out of the room. All edges jump forward in clarity. That's the visual acuity thing. But more than that, a kind of feeling of... of um, I guess it's anesthesia or something. But uh, your body feels very, very different and you still must do one more enormous toke. So what we tell people is, even though you feel very weird, don't stop. That's not sufficient. You have to get it on the money. And we're even developing um, a new technique for doing it that I'm very excited about, which is we have what looks like a pipe coming into a glass vessel, or, or, I mean, a, just a channel, a cylinder coming into a glass vessel. And out of the glass vessel comes another, sil- another tube with a fork in it. And what you do is you, uh, you vaporize the DMT. It fills the reaction chamber with white smoke. You put the forked ends into your nostril and you have a friend blow the white smoke and just force it into your sinus cavities. Um, this is an adaptation of the Yanomamo method, but they use wood, woody. It's like sawdust. It's very. But this is this is profound. So those three hits you would find in the seventy milligrams. Seventy yeah. milligrams would produce three good. Yeah. What you do is you 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 measure the seventy milligrams and you put it in the pipe. And then you try to smoke the pipe until either you get it all or you, the pipe holds from, falls from your hand. And what I do when I turn people on is I try to get them to do one or two tokes or three, whatever it takes, until they flop back and they present. You can tell whether they're getting off or not. And then the minute they flop back, I look at the second hand of my watch and I count 30 seconds, and then I say in a very quiet voice, do you want another hit? And if they sit up unaided, I'll give it to them. If they can't sit up, 
then I figure no matter what they say, they're out of bounds. And uh, and sometimes it takes it. It, it, it. There is a resistance there, but when you punch through, it's pure high vacuum on the other side. It just sucks you right in. Doing it? Well, actually, yeah, well... I, gl- I have tapes. I've never published tapes of me actually loaded, but I've, <laughs> I've le- because they're low quality, you know, made on some little. Te- I used to. I-, I had a period where I would take very high doses of mushrooms, like eight dried grams, and then smoke DMT on top of it, and that all went on in a tent in the Hawaiian rainforest. And I had a little recorder with me, but it's interesting. Uh, the glossolalia as to what it sounds like, it sounds like this. And somehow, that syntactically structured but meaningless kind of vocalization becomes the basis of an ecstasy of some sort for some reason and of course what's happening in the DMT thing is there is a three-dimensional accompaniment you hear sounds but the person making the sounds is seeing what they're making they're not hearing the sounds are incidental they're like the sounds from a buzz saw when you make furniture the important thing is the furniture you make Uh, and, and you can that's why virtual reality interests me so much because my idea of a design program for virtual reality is go thou and simulate a DMT flash. Uh, that would have a commercial application. You could sell that. Industrial Light and Magic would be interested. And then we could give people DMT and then put them, and then after they came down, put them into the virtual reality simulator and say, critique, please. You know, is this what you saw? How is this different from what you saw? What changes would you make in this virtual reality environment to make it more DMT-like? And I think this is the way to build consensus. I've always said that these tech- the purpose of these technologies is to show each other the inside of our own heads. Dreams, but especially psychedelic uh, drug states. And uh, I think this is probably coming. I think that we will have, you know, that in the future... You may take, you may have psychedelic experiences, but they may not be your own. We may develop the equivalent of media stars who do it so well that you will just buy their CD and uh, do their trip. Remember in, uh, which book was it by Philip K. Dick? Or, or maybe it wasn't, maybe, I can't remember, but the, the, the science fiction story where this virginal 16-year-old girl with long blonde hair and perfect surfer body and so forth and so on, and she recorded and sold herself. That was the product. 
because she was so vital and so young and so bouncy and together that everybody wanted to be this young woman. And so they sold uh, sim vids and, uh, and she was on the top ten for a few months and then somebody else slipped in there. In transmigration of Timothy yeah. Archer could have been. Anything more, yes. How's your health? Yeah. How's my health? Uh, I, good, I think, unless some horrible thing is lurking in the background. Uh, I, I don't have, I have low cholesterol. Um, it's, my health profile is pretty uninteresting, I think. Let me see, what's the most interesting thing? The most chronic thing wrong with me is migraines, and I've sort of learned to manage them. I don't take drugs for migraine. I physically manipulate an acupressure point. Uh, do you mean, do I think drugs have done anything to me? Well, not necessarily do I think that they've done, or do you think they've done anything to you, but I mean, in my experience, you know, sometimes I'm tired later or whatever, I feel there's a drain. And so I wonder if, if since you seem to do a lot, do you um, yeah, do anything I, to maintain your health? Or? Oh, I go to the gym three days a week. I, uh, you know, I smoke enormous amounts of cannabis. <laughs> I mean, I just uh, always have. Um, no, I think I'm pretty, pretty healthy and fairly ordinary. Uh, it's a somewhat sensitive question because at one point Dennis claimed that the only thing that would ever happen to me was that my hair would get white. And uh, I'm waiting for some <laughs> other sign, you know, is, uh, uh, not sure. Uh, no, I'm, I, don't, I don't think the, if, if the core of your question is, do these drugs pose a problem to health? I don't think so. Uh, the only possible problem to health that any of these drugs might pose is I do wonder about the the act of smoking cannabis. But one can eat cannabis and meet all the objections to it and still be loaded to the gills. So that's a delivery problem, not a problem inherent to the drug. It isn't the cannabis I'm worried about, it's the tars. And there are no tars if you eat it. So, and and the, in most places in the world where it has had a long history, it is eaten. Opium as well. You know, opium was not smoked in the Orient until tobacco was introduced. Uh, it was always you took a little pea-sized piece of opium and dissolved it in wine or a cup of tea. And that's the classic. And, and and hashish was eaten in most cases up until the late 19th century. Again, the influence of tobacco brought on the tendency to smoke these things. I don't think that, I mean, on this question of health, I don't think people should be loaded all the time, uh, other than cannabis or something like that. But I mean psychedelic Voyages are trips away from home. They are trips away from home. And we go away from home if we're uh, able to afford it several times a year. That sounds about right. 
the other thing I'm no fan of, and I suppose I should say it and then let you go, is I do not believe uh, as a rule, I mean, I would break the rule in some cases, but as a rule, I think it's bad to combine drugs. Uh, you know, if very little is known about these drugs, a thousand times less is known about what happens when you start combining things. And, you know, I, I know people who are really druggy. I mean, I know people who say, well, we got together last night and we smoked a little dope and then dropped some MDMA and somebody had some 5-MeO DMT and after that we used the ketamine to kind of mellow it out. <laughs> well, if you were to tell me that these people died of coronary thrombosis or stroke or anything else, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that's nuts to pile one drug upon another like that. I mean, and then you say, oh, well, how was it? Say, it was far out, man. (laughs) Well, my God, I would certainly hope so. Uh, We're not likely to revisit that combination anytime soon, so I hope you took good notes. No, I think high doses of pure compounds, high doses, heroic doses, Find out the LD50 for the drugs you're interested in so that when you're in there and your mind tells you, well, now you're going to die, you can at least have a dialogue with it about how that's impossible because you only took one two-hundredth of the lethally effective dose. If you don't know what the lethal dose is and your mind starts telling you you're dying, you're just uh, its creature to play with. Um, so it's very important to inform yourself uh, of the pharmacology, the botany, the ethnomedical dimensions of these things, the physiological presentation of the state, the anecdotal accounts of what goes on, and then do it, and do it right do it on an empty stomach, in darkness if that's indicated. And this whole thing about the guide, if you're not familiar with these things, you need a sitter. But a sitter is not a guide. A sitter is to call 911. And guides, anybody who tells you they're going to guide you, doesn't know the territory. Uh, Nobody can guide anybody else. They're just there to reassure in my, if I have a sitter, they're at least one room away, and I have a little Tibetan gong or something, and they can pop their head in if I ring it. But I don't like being around people when I'm stoned, and I really don't like being around stoned people when I'm stoned. No, no, pot is like cold water. But the reason I, the reason I don't like to be around people when I'm stoned and they're stoned is because I worry about them. If I'm, if I take five grams of mushrooms and somebody else takes five grams of mushrooms and we're lying side by side in a darkened room, I'm worrying about them. I'm listening. Can I hear them breathing? I hear them breathing. We'll say I can't. Well then, but maybe they are breathing. Well, but then if I bother them, maybe something really profound is happening to them. 
So then, and my mind just turns into a nattering moron of some sort, out of worry for the other person, and some weird sense of responsibility, usually because I'm the the advocate, if not the provider. Um, so you know, take all this with a grain of salt, process it through your own filters, proclivities, eccentricities, and so forth and so on, and uh, let's get together at four. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yep. you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, that wasn't uh, exactly a rousing ovation that we just heard for the Bard. <laughs> in fact, a good many of Terence's workshops, uh, particularly in the early years of his career, were, well, they were sometimes sparsely attended. Yet, Terence never let his audience down, and that's a good lesson, I think, for any of our younger fellow saloners out there who are putting their toes in the speaking waters, so to speak. <laughs> Years ago, uh, I traveled around the country on a motivational speaking circuit. Uh, that's right, I was a motivational speaker, and I flew hot air balloons for a hobby. Most people figured that I used my own hot air to lift the balloon, but, well, that's another story. What I was uh, trying to say before I so rudely interrupted myself here is that if you are a new speaker or a conference organizer, there are going to be times when your audience is significantly smaller than you hoped for. And it's at those times, most of all, that you need to focus on the fact that the people who did come are your most important fans. Give them more than they bargained for and you won't regret it. And before I forget to mention this... We heard Terence just now say that he began talking in public about psychedelics in 1982. Well, I've managed to uh, come across three 1982 talks, and you can listen to those in podcasts 270, 317, and 318 if you're so inclined. I probably don't have to keep repeating this every time that Terence gives a detailed description of one of his DMT trips, but for our newcomers here... I uh, want you to know that I'd describe things somewhat differently. However, the biggest difference of some of my experiences when compared to what Terence said, uh, at least at the beginning of this talk, is that while he felt he was in a low-ceilinged room that was underground, I felt I was in a huge cavernous room whose ceiling caused me to think that I was in a large cathedral of some kind, and that the high ceiling and roof were made of clear amber-colored crystal. But... I guess that you really had to be there and see it for yourself. Now before I go, there is one announcement that may interest you, and that is the Symposia Psychedelic Conference that's going to take place from April 17th through the 19th. Now this conference is going to take place in Amherst, Massachusetts. However, if getting there would be kind of a stretch for you, you can also live stream the entire conference for only $20. And among the many speakers that you will hear at this conference are Earth and Fire Arrowwood and Nisei Debano, uh, all of whom have been featured here in the salon in the past. It looks like it's going to be a really interesting conference, and I'm looking forward to uh, listening to it online myself. The link is www.symposia, which is spelled really funny. It's spelled P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A symposia.com and I'll post that with the program notes for today's show which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us and for now this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space be careful out there my friends <laughs>